Welcome to Whisper Town, provocative topics discussed freely. Today I've got my resident guest with me today, Mr. Stephen. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. Thank you, Anthony. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. Getting used to the lockdown. So, Indeed. you know. Indeed. We're back for another round today. A special one. A special one. This one's all about the money. It's all about the money. Oh, nice. Yes. So, today's episode's called Investments, Insurance, and ISAs. Okay. As people are starting to think about life after the lockdown, uh, some people who have been astute enough have been considering what ways they can improve their finances during the lockdown and after the lockdown. Um and I wanted to just have an open, transparent chat about um, three main areas of, of finance that we can say impact people's lives and just have a general chat about the opportunities that might be out there right now um, and which ones you think are good, which ones you think are bad. And yeah, just have a general chat around them. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Cool. All right. So first one is investments um and i want to start off with stocks in march the stock market crashed um this was well documented and it was a global crash so all of the stock markets across the world um, and the financial markets within them um, all plummeted now, that in itself means that some people may have lost a lot of money. And conversely, it may present an opportunity for people to acquire stocks at prices which are considerably lower than what they would have been if there wasn't a financial market crash. Yeah. So I'm interested, Stephen. Have you been seduced by anything in the financial markets during this period? Um, not, not, not necessarily seduced just yet, but uh, the actual the actual crash like globally was was an interesting uh, phenomenon, and I think you know in these situations you always have you know winners and losers, or you always have you yeah. know, the, the opportunists. And you have those who panic. Um, so a lot of you know, in, investors, no doubt, um, have been a little bit frantic. And I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, financial advisors and, and credit credit companies have been quite very busy during this period, trying yeah. to manage a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of wealth for a lot of um, people. Um, but. I started to pay some attention to to some of those crashes, and more so to sort of see who was 
who's resist who's been resistant to um any of the any other fluctuations so when you look across the board everything from the big aviation companies um, yeah. from you know airbus to rolls royce to you know uh all of the airlines different industries a lot of prices have sort of dipped over the period um particularly around things like the announcements of either uh quarterly uh, budget statements that, that have come yeah. out um, detailing losses or when announcements come out around the uh, percentage reduction of work, the workforce that's coming to help, you know, uh, sort of secure yeah. the position. Uh, a lot of prices, share prices have fallen, which, you know, which would make them potentially more attractive so long as you had confidence in the long game in terms of, the return to some sense of normality and uh, business sort of picking back up to uh, a reasonable enough level. Yeah. But um, one, of, one, of, one of the areas that I looked at, I think somewhere along the lines as well, were, at, were tech stocks. So, yeah. you know, with the rise and rise of, of Microsoft Teams as a, as a platform for uh, managing web conferencing and just day-to-day team interaction. I think in the UK in particular, throughout the entire uh, NHS, public sector services and so forth. Um, I think, you know, all of these platforms between Zoom as well, Skype to a lesser extent, you know, I think those types of stocks were quite interesting to me just to monitor rather than fancying a dalliance anyway um, yeah. to see what sort of increase uh, would, would come off of the back of the situation as well as that I think uh, different social media platforms as well I've, I've yeah. been interested in so all of the, the, the you know the, the usual suspects in that list uh, yeah. also including uh, things like YouTube as well whereby people were stuck at home so alternate forms of entertainment you know would be sought after as well so speaking of entertainment so things again like you know things like any any streaming service so on your netflix now tv all of these sorts of you know companies i would have paid some attention to because i would have anticipated um uh, an, an increase in in their share um I think one of the the biggest launches that happened during the period you may be aware, may be aware of this uh, jump in if you if you if you are is um the the launch of Disney Plus. <laughs> um, yes, I of think course. they 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 had one of the the, the broadest uh, marketing schemes for a period of time across every platform that I've encountered. Yes. Um, and have become sort of the fastest growing streaming platform yet. Now yes. there's some there's some logic that needs to be applied uh, to that when just handing it the title of fastest. I mean, we have to bear in mind that they they're not they're not the they're not the instigator of this. They're not an originator. They're not a you know a, a, a pathfinder yes. in in this sphere. Um, they they effectively like 
Apple is with updates to software. You know, a lot of things exist in the Android world. Apple comes out with a slightly tweaked, better version of it. And then all of a sudden, people behave as though Apple invented this feature in the first instance. Similar yes. thing with Disney+. Plus. Other, other, others existed, you know, have developed it, proven the concept, you know, rather successfully. And then Disney, in their seemingly infinite might, um, launch something with great success and immediately is capitalizes on everything that's gone before it. Anyway, I had to digress ever so, <laughs> ever so slightly there. Um, but in terms of stocks that I would have looked at, um, if I was interested, I would have looked at sort of tech stocks, really. Yeah. And software, different software houses, particularly, particularly the smaller variants of the more successful, big popular ones because there's going to be some scaling that's applied here. So not everyone's yes. going to be able to afford the, 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 the bigger options. And there are alternatives that actually exist. So, you know, that's, uh, that's something that I would have looked at. So the smaller companies are providing sort of similar, similar services yeah. that, might, that might be yeah. more attractive to some smaller smaller set of uses well all the stocks you mentioned and the sectors are all very interesting because they all relate to the sectors that have actually done very well during the pandemic so you know you mentioned microsoft their, their share prices increased um you you've mentioned um youtube so referring to alphabet um What's quite interesting is Zoom. Um, Zoom is a competitor to a number of the big tech houses and their streaming services, but stream uh, Zoom share prices has ballooned over the last couple of months. And to be honest with you, I was aware of Zoom as a as an offering, if not one I would have considered, only because I would have considered it. There's no technical reason for it but well that's over a, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting one you said sort of no no technical reason for it so i think what what happened with zoom when it came to sort of scaling is a lot of a lot of uh countries governmental agencies and so forth called into question the security aspect of zoom and that's a lot of the rationale for why i think uh, MS Teams sort of supersedes Zooms for a lot of the meeting functions. And yeah. Microsoft are playing catch up uh, in terms of replicating or getting close to the sort of levels that Zoom has in terms of the number of you know simultaneous feeds that you could actually display at, a, yes. at, at, at one time. So we've, we've you know, improved, upgraded from four to nine currently. Um, and if, uh, I believe in the autumn, they are going to go up to 49. So a seven by seven grid grid. So in, in a direct response, obviously to, to zoom because there, yes. there is no other platform. Um, so whilst zoom's doing well, um, I wonder if at some point it would actually begin to struggle. So if it would, it would plateau and it's share would a dip at some point. Well, it's quite interesting because the actual functionality of 
video conferencing and online collaboration isn't something that's going to go away. And as you quite rightly say, the fact that Microsoft is perceived to have an edge from a information security perspective, um, that might be telling with regard to how much of the overall video conferencing market share that Zoom can acquire and keep hold of. Um, what I have noticed just anecdotally is people who have used video conferencing for their social activities over this period. I think almost everyone that I know that, that has done that has defaulted to Zoom over anything else. And, and again, can, and you can count me on that list. Um, so why is there a particular reason why? Is, is it that Microsoft requires... Oh, no, because it doesn't. You can invite people no. to Teams meetings that don't no. have a Microsoft license. So what, what, what you have to understand is, you know, or not even understand, but what, what you have to remember is that, the, that when the pandemic hit globally and when a lot of the lockdowns started to reach uh, Europe and spread in that direction, I think that's when you had... A fundamental shift, as I call it, the, the the great social experiment, whereby there was the the mass exodus to everyone working from home. So the impact on the entire ecology of the country in terms of uh, transport, um, internet providers, ability to host an increased volume uh, residentially, etc. All of these things hit at once, so it, so all of a sudden you have a larger cohort of people who've become more aware about the existence of technologies, whereas some of this technology has existed for a period of time before that. So Zoom was quite very prevalent, particularly in Asia, as a video conferencing uh, alternative, more so than I'd heard about it. On, on you know here so but i knew about it from asia because i have different friends who've arranged meetings uh and and you know when i say meetings casual non-work related meetings uh with with myself so yeah. you know a lot of the, as i said a lot of these you know technologies or software do exist and are out there and and are used it's just that the general populations in a lot of countries have now gotten an instant greater awareness of a lot of the options that are there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. Okay. So Microsoft Teams wasn't wasn't born out of the global pandemic. You know, uh, for, <laughs> it didn't it didn't come into existence just to just to serve the global global pandemic. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. All right. So. That's stocks then. So, but going just 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 to just around up just around round out. So I think uh, the original the original questions around was there anything that caught my fancy? And uh, in your interests talk, you spoke about uh, stocks that would have gone down, and if anything has caught your eye uh, yeah. in terms of an attraction. So. I spoke about uh, the effect on, on the transport industry. And then if I think if we consider what actually 
powers a lot of transport. We need to look at the uh, petrol companies, the oil companies. So <laughs> these are companies whose stocks have taken uh, a considerable hit during this period of time, given the, the, the mass global reduction in consumption. Um, so a lot of those prices have tumbled during this period. So in terms yeah. of uh, in terms of attraction, um, we know that things will re- return to a a state that has a level of consumption not too dissimilar to what it is now. Um, that's undeniable. So there would be a reasonable expectation of those stock prices rising again over a period of time when that that happens over time. So in terms of a in terms of attraction. That would potentially be uh, an area that I would I would consider, and for me one of the, yeah. one of my favorite yardsticks in terms of uh, price. So a lot of people in terms of long, you know, medium to long term invest investments tend to look at the price of gold. Um, yeah. So again, during the period, you would have seen that there was some movement against, you know, the the, the price of the price of gold. Yeah. So subject to a, what you what you've done, you would have you, you would either have seen it as an opportunity, or you would have panicked a little bit. So. Well, it was quite interesting, the gold argument because gold has been seen as the default safe haven for everything since the beginning of time, really. Um, and it's quite interesting because gold is, and I'm just checking this as we're speaking, um, it's pretty much getting towards an all-time high. Um, so I don't think you would have made any fundamental mistakes by hedging money in gold whatsoever. Indeed. Well, what's quite interesting with the stock market overall um, is aligned to some of the points you've raised. There are some opportunities and there are risks involved with some of these opportunities because ultimately for someone to win, someone must lose. Um, What happened in March is a, a phenomenon that doesn't happen very frequently which is where the, the whole market crashes globally. Um, and what's quite interesting is there's a lot of new investors that I'm, I'm hearing about. And when I say new investors, I mean people who have never invested in the stock market before and they've basically been told that now is a very good time to buy stocks because the stock market is effectively is at a discount Um, so everyone should get involved and my view is yes there are some fantastic opportunities right now however um, it's not without doing the relevant fundamental research in those companies will you know if you have a discount on a good company or a discount on a bad company and then there are still systematic risks that exist which can kibosh any short medium or long-term plan 
Um, I would not bet against a second wave of coronavirus, which could put regions across the planet back into lockdown. And if that were to happen, one should expect an adverse reaction in the stock market, even if they are flash crashes. So I would I would take advantage of some of the options, but also take advantage of any risk management tools that exist, i.e. a stop loss is your friend, because I don't <laughs> think the volatility is something that anyone can predict how violent it will be. And you want to be the right side of the volatility, but how do you do that? Um, so it depends on what people's objectives are with investment, you know, short, medium or long term. You know, if you go on Instagram or you read any books, um, uh, they tell you, you know, holding and holding investments and investing for the long term is what can help you de-risk any swings in volatility. Uh, but does everybody have a long-term aspiration or goal? Because if some people are only investing because they want to see return in six months, well, they could be in a roller coaster for the next six months. And, and at the end of six months, they won't know if they had a good ride or a bad ride. Yeah. I mean, there's, the, there's always that risk-reward balance, isn't, isn't there? So your yeah. your long term in, investment is uh, is playing with the laws of averages. So yes. uh, if you if you study Warren Buffett's market strategies over the past several decades, um, you can see he he's played the long game in terms of you know the the law of averages, which has only yeah. travelled in a steady but positive direction. Um, yes. I mean, as with as with any road, you know, no road is perfectly smooth. There, there are little divots and, and bumps in it, but they they are relatively small, and you know, you return back to some sort of normality in terms of that gradual uh, increase to trajectory that you're that you're on. Um, for your short term, again, that's that's the the risk reward uh, factor that comes into play. I mean, with with all of your trading options, um, you know, we where you we we are short trading. Um, yeah. You can you can, you know, make con- take considerable risks for a significantly better uh, return on 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 investment, but you carry that genuine risk. So yeah. you mentioned you know having your 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 stop losses. Um, but depending on the volume that you're you're trading and what you set your stop loss stop loss at, you will either continually make a series of um, small losses against your stop loss limit um, yeah. because you haven't ridden you, your 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 range isn't wide enough to necessarily yeah. take you up to the highest points. So you'd you'd have to be, you know really focused on actually knowing the the sector or the stock or whatever it is you're 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 trading in to make that judgment call about when you know when when's a good entry point and what your what your your range should be um i think i think there's (laughs) there's there's a genuine risk of you know 
um, becoming greedy with with this. I mean, a lot of the focus is on, you know, that 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 instant reward. Yeah, I think as as humans, we all have that you know that that instant gratification monkey that lives in inside us, and there's that excitement and adrenaline that goes that goes along with it. I mean, it's it's akin to gambling, right? So it's that high stakes, yeah, risk reward. So that that's 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 my view. How do, how do you feel? Yeah. So there's a distinction between one who identifies as a trader and one who identifies as an investor. And in my opinion, an investor is someone who buys into the stock market at a price with a view of hopefully selling that same investment in the future for more money. And that person is willing to hold that investment for a period of time, depending on what their investment timeframes are, uh, you know, shorts and short can be determined differently by different people. But short, I would say, in, in my opinion, would be, you know, you know, six to 12 months, you know, uh, medium term, maybe two to three years, and then longer term, four years plus, but you know, there's no hard and fast rules around that. And the whole idea is, is that, you know, you buy it, you hold it, you ride it out, assuming that the company's good and they don't go bust within the time that you're holding it and then, you know, sell it for more money in a couple of years. Um, a trader is a different type of individual and that would be someone who, as part of their day job or is their day job to buy and sell securities with a view of making money. And my personal view is that that is normally, they traders tend to hold their stocks for a much shorter time frame than what uh, the average investor would. Although you do get traders that hold security for months and months, but you know, there are different types of traders, you know, there's day traders, there's tend to hold securities no more than a day, then you get your your swing slash momentum traders that try and ride waves over a couple of days with regards to a swing trade or a momentum trader could hold it maybe up to a month. And then and then you get your longer term sort of position traders where, you know, they're they're pretty much like like investors. They're 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 willing to hold on to it maybe up until the short term, maybe up until nine months maybe, and then and then let and then let it go if the, if they haven't got rid of it before then and it still holds out to be something as prospect. So with me, um, there is this thing about gambling and in, and investing. There, there is a thing between it, but understanding the goal of the individual, it helps to clarify whether that person is is closer to gambling than investing yeah, or close to investing than gambling. I think uh, on top of that, it's in, in probably useful to highlight um, a, another distinction, really, uh, with it. So, for me, it's in terms of you know an an investor. The idea is that you have um, some availability in terms of capital that you aren't that you aren't sort of reliant on 
for part of your existence. So if you're, and again, you can still have short, medium and long-term investment, but in terms of long-term investment, the, the idea is that it is, it is, you know, capital proper. So surplus to your needs, it's not, it's not, you know, you know, your existence and your livelihood isn't contingent on, on that particular set of money. Um, Again, when you come down to the day day trading uh, type level, uh, so between your securities and forex and things of that nature, um, you may have a lot of people seeking opportunities, uh, but have a little bit more of a reliance for their livelihoods on the success yeah. of uh, that that level of trading. So I think. That, that distinction between the groups. Potentially, I'm not saying that every day trader is, you know, uh, reliant on that for their income. It, you know, it might be a dalliance, it might be an experiment, uh, or they may just genuinely have a love for it. Um, anyway. Yeah, no, you're right. Exactly. I think you're right. So, obviously, another assumption that I make is a, a, tra- a trader tends to be a professional trader who's doing it for income as in that is their main form of generating income whereas an investor it isn't it's more of a shall we say a side hustle or um, like you say surplus to their main source of income um, so yeah and, and, and those are, and those are the distinctions so it just comes down to um, the individual and, and, and what their what their view is and how they treat it. Um, I think the only way a an investor can guarantee themselves that they aren't just taking a tip from someone because they want to make money is if they invest the requisite time in understanding and learning about the balance sheet and understanding about what the company they want to invest in does because when you're buying a share you are buying a percentage of a company so would you go and buy a company for a couple of million pounds without finding out what they do looking at what their balance sheet looks like looking at the cash flow forecasts and and and, and reading the profit and loss and, and making sure that they're healthy financially you know would you go and spend five million pound to buy a company without doing that uh, well i know no, you wouldn't and I think also as well as looking for them in terms of the forecasts, you also look into the into the history of the company yeah. as well, and you look at the the seasonality um, variations over a number of years to understand that you don't need to panic when you see certain uh, increases or more so dips in 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 prices over a period because you know that that again. That long-term investment, when I said it's that that law of averages, um, will correct itself uh, usually. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So, I think the same with anything really is yeah. Stock market, there are opportunities. Um, take the time to look into the companies that you're interested in, and. If you weren't going to invest in that company before the pandemic, then I'd question why you'd want to invest in that company now if you've not done the requisite research into what the company is doing, how they performed in the past, and 
their prospects going forward financially and from a new service slash product point of view. Um, it's only a discount from my point of view if you're going to buy it before. Um, otherwise, without the requisite research, I think you are on the verge of picking something just because you want to come up. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that at all as long as you understand the risk associated with that, if it, especially if it's a bad company, because even good companies in this volatile period will have a time of, of, of going in a straight line. So let alone a company that is bad and, and doesn't have great prospects in the short, medium or long term. So, yeah. so I guess that's a stock market. I have a, um, a last I have a, I have a, I have a last question, just, out of, just to satisfy my curiosity and get, get your opinion on it. Oh, so, yeah. In terms of in terms of looking for opportunities for for investment, would you consider investing in three D printing companies or three D printing tech technology companies? As a principle, or so okay, so more along the lines of thinking along the lines of um, would could. Would you anticipate or would you reasonably expect uh, a company, a 3D printing company or a company that you know, has 3D printing manufacturing processes uh, at a scale, would you anticipate companies like that to increase in value over the next couple of years, for example? This is just a just, just this is just a hypothetical question. Just putting it out there because I, I I have a I have a view about this as well. So I just wanted to see what you thought. So hypothetically, I think that three D printing will become part of standard manufacturing processes over time. I understand, especially I'm not, I'm aware of in the Middle East. There's lots of bleeding edge companies that are using 3D printing as part of, you know, infrastructure development. Um, I can see it growing. I guess I'm not personally aware that it's a hot industry to get involved in right now for someone who wants something in the short term. But possibly if I were interested in the medium to long term investment, and I had a market leader in 3D printing, that that is something that I, I probably would put some money into if I were to consider a, a long-term investment because it is something that will grow. And I think it will. it's a type of um, technology that will do better in the less developed parts of the world or rich countries that are still rapidly building up i.e in the middle east um i believe it will be something that will cross over into africa and assist with the urbanization of, of regions in africa as well due to the potential cost savings that it could bring so i do see it being a big thing just not i just i just can't see that happening within the next five years though that's that's the only thing i'd say Okay, uh, thank yeah, thanks for that. I was, I was 
as I said, I just threw that out there. I was curious to see uh, what your what your opinion is on this one. So I think I'm. I'm what do you I'm, think? I'm 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 similar to you in in that respects. It's definitely not a not a short term um, sort of sort of game because there's I I don't think there are too many uh, well known established big enough like you know leaders in the industry that you would look to in, in invest in. Or well, I mean maybe maybe they are from a commercial industrial bigger sort of scale, but. In terms of its its prevalence, and I think I think there'd be very little industries that it it won't play a role in. Um, everything from the construction industry, the automotive industry, and even the 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 healthcare industry. You know, sort of three D three D printing of of you know uh, replacement joints and things of that nature. Uh, for for different medical procedures, um, again, would you know, is I think is already uh, available as or is already utilized and used. So, you know, for for me in terms of a long term investment, it would be something that I would probably be, you know, be doing more research into. Um, yeah. If I was if I was going to think about some long term investments. Yeah, yeah, no, no, sounds good, sounds good. Like I say, I've I've, I've definitely seen it being deployed a lot in the uh, in the Middle East. So you'll be interested to see how that how that grows over the next couple of years. Any more on stocks? No, I think we I think we have that pretty well covered. Okay, so the next one is property. Now, I haven't got any hard facts in front of me with regards to the property market, and I feel like I should. So as I'm talking to you, I'm quickly going on to the nationwide website to see what the official numbers are. But I'm aware that house prices have universally dropped or at least the average house price has dropped um so i'm going to get that information up as uh as i'm talking to you uh yeah, but I as think, a general oh go on i think i think we're we're entering into a not to the similar phase um as the 2008-9 uh financial crash in terms of the impact on the uh housing market in terms of uh, prices and uh, uh, availability in terms of um, mortgage lending and things of that nature. I think the difference between now and the financial crash is that it was specifically around the financial services. So there was a lot of uh, fear around uh, from lenders in terms of parting with their money um, because there was seemingly more risk. I think the Im impact now is that all industries have been affected. So you potentially have greater disruption in terms of people's livelihoods and income and general affordability. So I think the house price sort of, you know, crash 
would be uh, uh, an expected uh, an expected thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've got the nationwide house price index dated May twenty twenty, um, and the headlines are the monthly change in house price was minus 1.7%, which I think we can both agree would be expected. However, the annual change from May 2019 to May 2020 um, was a slowdown to 1.7, no, 1.8%, but that's not a decline in price on the previous year. I think we're probably a little bit too early um, to actually see what uh, uh, what a rolling annual position sort of looks like. It, it's mm. easier to do the immediate impact looking at a looking at a single month, for example, because it's the type of thing where you can look at the number of mortgage applications that were received month month on month to actually spot that declining trend. For example, um, yeah. So I think over the next over the next six months, if you look at that rolling years position, I think there you would see more variation um, against the against the prices. And again, the the I think the impact on the on, on house prices or property prices isn't isn't uniform either across the the types that exist within it. Um, so houses, definitely. Yes. I know a lot of, uh, flats didn't were reducing price, um, to the, to the same proportion as houses did because yeah. on the flip side, what you had was a boom in the rental market whilst you had that reduction in house prices and unavailability of mortgage mortgages. Well, Unavailability on account of the 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 more stringent uh, restrictions around being able to secure a mortgage to to buy a house, um, but yeah, the 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 rental market had quite a boom uh, compared to what was happening with the housing market um, because again with with flats with the unavailability of mortgage and the inability to, to buy a house, a lot of people still needed a place to, to live. So the rental uh, sector allowed people that opportunity to still find somewhere to live with that, again, medium to long-term goal of actually yeah. still owning a house house in the future. So the, the supposition would be, can we anticipate a similar impact uh, or a similar proportion um, percentage, you know, uh, comparison between the house prices of houses and, and flats this time around, as we did back then, um, will we find ourselves in a similar position? So more people not being able to afford a mortgage or to, to buy a house and seeking rental uh, accommodation for that interim period until they can get back. Um, in the saddle. So it's going to be an interesting period 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Because um, one would expect, due to the financial impact of the pandemic, that property prices will drop. I still vividly remember 2008, 2009, um, with the Great Recession. And it still feels like that recession only ended a couple of years ago, in many ways, because I think, anecdotally, house prices probably started picking up, I'd say, maybe 2013, 2014, when they started to, to roar again. And between 2008 and 2014, that was still, you know, like five years. And it really did feel like the country was in austerity for that whole period of time because it felt like nothing financially was really moving quickly in, in this country. And I just have a concern that history could repeat itself. The reason for my pessimism is the amount of people that have been furloughed over the last couple of months and my pessimistic view on how many of those people that were furloughed will actually be going back to a job after their furlough period completes. Yeah. And then compounding that with the delay and deferment of certain government bills that the government have enabled small, medium and large businesses to take to ease the financial burden of being locked down and being able to trade, I still fear that come January there will be mass repossessions, mass bankruptcies and that will form a, another regional financial crash in this country and that potentially could create a scenario where house prices drop even further. Now, some might say, oh, that's a good thing for some because that might mean that people who have been able to get on the property ladder or people who might be looking to upscale in size might be able to do that at a cheaper price point and there might be some buy-to-let investors who might be seeing this as a good opportunity to buy property at a much cheaper price. Now, all of those things may be true if what I'm predicting comes through. However, how quickly can one expect the property market to gather pace after January 2021 because I'm not so confident on the property position and then to compound Brexit on top of that because we still don't know in detail unless I've missed it what flavour of Brexit we're going to get and what rights people who lived in this country 
who are not British citizens. Oh, no, let me rephrase that. People who are not considered citizens within the country, what rights they will or won't have come the end of this calendar year. Because I think that that has a equally large impact on what property prices and property rents will have. And I have no confidence that any sweet deal will be done this year. So overall, pretty pessimistic. Um, but for the person who wants to invest in property, the only th fear I have is if you invest a lot of money into something that you need a return from in the next five years, I'm I'm not confident that it's going to boom that much within that time frame. I actually think there's probably potential for more downside in in the medium term than there is upside. Again, you know, going back to our short, medium, and long term in terms of an investment, um, the the law of averages will will dictate that you know house prices will re, you know return to. Uh, the this level and and more in time but that's 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 the long-term view um i think the actual the the impact as you rightly said you know won't be felt felt until later this year so with the deferment of uh companies in terms of paying certain taxes well it, it's a it's a deferment not a not a write-off um which means that at some point that that money will be owed, and again, I think that attributes to some of the potential uh, job loss or, um, you know, cessation of particularly the smaller companies' existence. I mean, larger companies aren't exempt uh, either, um, and as you know, if, as we look at Into, uh, which manages the varying shopping centres that have gone into administration. Um, as, as an example, but uh, house prices will decrease and it just depends on how, how closely we would, it, it mirrors the 2008-9 um, situation uh, in terms of the impact on the economy and what the government's reaction to it is going to be. So we entered into the austerity measures for the period of time that we did as a means to effectively clear the loans that the, the government generated to save the, the financial sector. Um, yeah. I think we had previously discussed the, the, the volume of money that would be needed to be generated to save more of the different sectors that are impacted because the difference this time is that it's not just one sector that was impacted, it's every sector. Yeah. Um, the money you know, needed to actually rescue all of those uh, would be obscene and not not available, and I think that would put us into an austerity position that uh, was greater than before. That's predicated on the government's willingness to actually rescue uh, all of these companies. Uh, the financial sector is a is a sort of two headed sort of beast, really, in terms of what you're willing to sacrifice and and not. So 
just looking at London in terms of the wealth generation for the country, um, if we want to talk about a disproportionate representation, um, <laughs> looking at you know the, the financial sector in London in terms of the income generation uh, in, in the country shows you just how important and significant it is and letting the financial uh, companies you know lose or fail would be significantly more detriment than them not even though they were the architects of their own misery and subsequently everyone else's misery so yeah. i think with the, with the wider sectors impacted um by the, this global pandemic i don't think there's the same uh rationale for being able to save all of them but there is the rationale for safeguarding people's livelihoods because at some point when you return to a, a, a revised definition of normalcy then you're going to need those people to continue in a business as usual type yeah. of way so again the furlough scheme um, again has been in place that has safeguarded and protected a lot of people uh, during this difficult time but in terms of the housing uh, market and situation again it, it depends how the financial industry sort of reacts to it so with the previous crash we had very strict uh, rules that were introduced and to a large extent still remain so the percentage deposit required uh, to buy a property increased quite significantly before and the impact yeah. of that was pricing out a lot of first-time buyers who were either renting at quite high prices during the period and not able to have uh, gathered uh, a, a sizable deposit I mean if you're looking at uh, for example a 500,000 pound house um, and they required you required you to have 30% of it that's you know quite a substantial period of money versus pre the 2009 eight nine sort of time it wouldn't have been a 30% requirement yeah. <laughs> for for a deposit you know so it depends on what actually happens in terms of the the money availability and with with the the, the mortgage lenders um to, to some extent so if they react in the same way and i'm not entirely sure why they would because a lot of that was their their safeguarding measures which they've relaxed to some extent so it comes it'll it'll reflect in their confidence about the stability of the economy because they they will be taking that risk on people being able to retain employment and subsequently able to keep up with mortgage payment payments um we know what the net outcome is of your inability to keep up with those payments um so that's the uh, potential rise in repossessions that you're speaking about comes down the line um so it's it's quite very sort of complex to try and predict what what we would see happen to the to the housing market but from a medium term point of view i could i could understand what what the actual 
risk is. Um, from a short-term point of view, again, there is no short-term elements to the house buying uh, market unless you are doing it to sort of try and turn a profit, which again, doesn't happen as much as it used to, you know, buying yeah. a fixer-upper um, and then, and then you know, turning that over within a, a short period of time, you know, uh, two to three months. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's very interesting. I mean, at the same time, don't forget the the government has ever increasing housing expansion schemes um, to to build new houses because there's a significant gap in house availability versus demand. So, what you know, what will happen to house prices in in that instance for the companies constructing new properties due to come online over the next five years. Do you then see a reduction in the price of the newer properties um, for them to remain com competitive in order? Interesting point, but to actually to actually sell them, or you know what happens? Do you, Do you ever think that the demand will catch up with the supply, or no, the other way around? Do you think the supply would ever catch up with the demand? I I, I don't think it would ever. Be equal. No, no, and it, it, and it, I, it, I almost think this system has been constructed so so it's never equal because that is the one thing that drives multiple industries profitability. I'm 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 not I'm not even sure if it's if if if, if you even if you consider it as a as a deliberate act to to maintain uh, uh, certain industries, but I remember um, I remember. Who was speaking? I remember it was. I can't remember which prime minister it was, but the, I don't think it was Boris Johnson, but they they gave a talk around the, the the program to build houses to try and address the the demand, and as much as they were singing the praises of the the, the schemes that were in place and. You know the numbers of houses they say that were going to be built over the the period of time. I think the host uh, of of the show quickly pointed out that whilst you're singing the the praises of the numbers being built, the demand is significantly higher than yeah. than than the rate that you're quoting, which which clearly demonstrates that uh, for as much as you're building, you're only ever white you know the gap is only ever still widening in terms of supply and demand so yeah well it's uh it's an interesting one because um yeah again ultra pessimistic don't don't see that being resolved anytime soon um yeah just don't, 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 don't see that being resolved anytime soon. And and yeah, you are right. I, I do think that we're going to go for a period of the banks changing how they operate because of the pandemic. So we'll, we shall see. We shall see. Because as we were talking there, I, I, I flicked across a uh, an update from The Economist. Um, it's just escaped me. Here we go. Um, and it 
was tying in with exactly what you were saying as you were saying. It was like, well, this is perfect. Um, and it will relate to commercial property. And it says, investors' love affair with commercial property is being tested. And we could talk about that, especially because it feels like there will be a preference for hot desking, office downsizing brought about because of the pandemic. So it will be interesting to see what happens to commercial property and if the demand for that decreases or conversely increases. And then on the same bulletin, there is an update, or shall I say an article, which says, is Europe preventing COVID-19 layoffs or merely delaying them, which talks to the point that I was trying to raise earlier about these zombie jobs that it's been quoted here as, as um, you know, jobs that don't exist or the colonies will be better off without. Um, so it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens there. I mean, I, I think I think that's that's fine so long as um, you aren't employed on under one of those zombie jobs that's keeping food on your table. Um, so <laughs> it's a mm. it's, it's uh, I again you can always appreciate the 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 wider sentiment of of the articles in in the conversation. You know, it, it's always looking at things like, you know, the artificial inflation uh, of, of a situation. Um, so be it share prices, be it house prices, yeah. be, be, it, be it whatever, there's an artifice that inevitably leads to a, a correction, right? Yes. Um, if you go back to the year 2000 and you look at the, 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 the dot-com bubble, you know, when, when that burst quite quite spectacularly and overnight removed hundreds of billions from <laughs> from the stock market in, in one one fell swoop. Um, that there's that overinflation of, of value that was, you know, as I said, uh, uh, an artificial thing that ultimately led to a correction in values. So the, the 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 jobs that are you know being maintained or or put on put on life support as it were for one of a better phrase there yeah you know they still help and they are still serving the people who are employed uh, under under those jobs we aren't in a situation whereby the economy is prosperous. We aren't. We aren't in. We aren't in a state. We aren't in a state of an existence like China's economy was over the past twenty years, where year on year you saw their their GDP increase by phenomenal percentages, where there was this continued continual drive and increase in 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 their markets in their industries. To support it so if we sort of remove the 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 zombie jobs if we're, we're quoting the uh the economists there as opposed to them being my words if you remove yeah. those 
economically, we aren't in a position whereby the industries are booming and there's a revival and there are plentiful alternative employment options available for people. Everybody's going to be scrambling. And if you look at all of the industries and the, the largest companies who sort of seemed bulletproof up until this point, everybody's making uh, job cuts and reductions to actually just survive in the first instance. So it may be de- delaying the inevitable, but I think the important part is the what is after that. And I think your, your point around Brexit also plays into that as well. It's, it's seemingly more likely to head towards a no-deal Brexit yeah. uh, on, on the face of things. Um, I haven't been uh, fully invested uh, in the current situation. Uh, I'm not going to lie there. So, But everything that I'm hearing and seeing sort of indicates that a no-deal Brexit seems more likely. Um, what, what changes and impacts that has on the economy and the housing market? Again, potentially with the, the rental market, there may be, again, that increased demand as there previously was. If people then can't afford to buy their homes but still need somewhere to live, and it'll be impacted by any potential displacements brought about um, by, by Brexit actually happening this time. I think before when you know, the, the Brexit vote happened and the immediate period after that, we started to see uh, that, that, that movement of the people in terms of some people returning back to uh, their originating countries um, yeah. on, the, on the basis of uncertainty as opposed to any finite decisions about what their rights will or won't be. And I think there's been adjustments over the the years since the vote in terms of what some of the rights will be that has made, I think, a lot of people more confident um, about what, what the, the future might be for them living in the UK still. So... Again, none of, none of these things are the, the simplest uh, things to actually think through and, and yeah. give definitive answers about. So it, it's, it's all speculative until it happens with a reasonable degree of being able to spot certain trends that will happen. As a random question, do you think that businesses should have the ability to sack individuals who either A, are not good at their jobs, or B, they can no longer afford to keep without some of the red tape and policies that prevent it being so easy in this country. It's a loaded question. It it it, it is. So, 
where where do I where do I start? Uh, where do I start with that particular question? Uh, let's let's uh, let's pick an angle. So CIPD, so the Chartered Institute of uh, Personnel and Development, um, has has been around for over a hundred years. I think that they were founded in nineteen thirteen. And yeah. over all, all this time and over the last, you know, uh, 20 to 30 years for sure, have been embedded in a lot of governmental agencies, governments, and other industries and companies to develop better working practices in terms of the handling of personnel. So the first part of your question was around... Uh, sacking people who aren't good enough at their jobs. Well, yeah. again, a, a lot of the work that the CIPD did was around appropriately handling these type of situations with, with staff. So putting in a framework that you followed through um, to do those assessments um, to e effectively lead to that position. So if somebody isn't good enough at their job, that should be evident in terms of their contribution, their effectiveness, uh, and, and so forth within the organization. And the organization should have the policies in place that would uh, allow you to be taken down some sort of uh, capability uh, route in terms of examining your suitability for the role and your competency in the role. And ultimately, you know, leads to you not being in, no longer being employed at that organization. So I think that that element exists in terms of just 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 looking at it flatly in terms of the question that you asked about, you know, should companies um, sack people who aren't good enough at their jobs? Um, <laughs> I think you can't, you know, don't just sack them if you if, if there's just reason for it. Uh, yeah. then you follow the appropriate procedures. As I said, I, I, I sort of went back to CIPD because, again, as an, as an agency, this has been their fundamental role, um, as I said, with all levels of, of organizations, even governmental, private, and otherwise, in setting up their procedures around managing, for a lot of companies, what is the most uh, – important resource which uh, which are their staff yeah in terms of those uh, who are employing people or are able to keep people on because of things like the furlough scheme that's a that's a more difficult type of conversation that I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I think we have seen a lot of companies sort of do their own assessments about what it is they need to do to survive. And I think I'd previously said, uh, in our conversation this evening that a lot of big companies as well as small companies have announced um, 
job cuts um, direct as a direct impact of the situation. So yeah. I think furlough, you know, the furlough program is is assisting on, on maintaining whilst there's that genuine loss of uh, revenue. But I think a lot of them are repositioning themselves for the point after furlough, and they have that plan in terms of reducing the workforce. Anyway. Yeah, okay. All right, so the next real subject then, because I was just really interested to to, to, to hear your response on, on that random question there, is, is insurance. Now, I personally probably have too much insurance and i'll explain what i mean by too much insurance some some um, would some would say you can never have you can never have too much insurance but i'll let you go on yeah well it depends if they work for the industry or not i guess <laughs> um i guess so i've got a myriad of different insurances uh, some of which i probably shouldn't say actually because it might give people uh some opportunity but um I've, I've probably got too much insurances, right? Um, and some of them are ones that, to be honest, if you're a person with a family, you should have. And there are other ones which are more personal things for random objects, right? I But what I do definitely have and what I'd advocate for everyone to have would be a level of, of, of life insurance that takes care of your important others um, in case of the worst and if you have the ability to and or if you don't already get it through your place of work is to invest in a level of medical cover um, to help you get fast-tracked if the worst were to happen. So those are the two types of insurances that I would advocate for if anyone starts me for advice on what insurance should I, should I definitely have. All the other ones um, the ones that are not mandatory, um, I guess that could just be a personal decision on on those particular items or things that want need to be insured. But the reason I ask is, and I don't know if this is a thing. I've done no research. I've been lazy. Um, I don't know if life insurance is a thing that lots of people who are under the age of 45 do have or not and someone might say oh well, do your research you might find out that everyone's got it but actually there are certain topics that come up with people and I would, I reckon I would have a good gauge based on general conversation with people if it's something I thought lots of people of, uh, around my age range and above would have. And either it's not something that's really discussed. From my personal anecdotal point of view, I have no facts to back this up. Um, and I'm, it just made me think so, what insurances? Stephen, do you think everyone should have? And I know it's a very general, broad question, but are there any insurance that you say any 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 person 
must have. I would, I would, I would say, singularly, I'll, I'll give a, I'll give a, a single answer. I'll say, life insurance, which is going to be one of the shortest things I've ever said in terms of a response to any of the questions so far. But, yeah. but life, life insurance. Um, I, I like, I like your, your your anecdotal point with regards to the uh, age brackets in terms of having having life insurance or not having life insurance. So my question back to you would be, uh, when was the last time you saw a life insurance advert that featured people under the age of 30, let's say? Well, never is, is a short response to that. I've never seen it. And okay. that... Very good question. Uh, so I'm going to let you go on with that. But that's a very good question. So, so yeah. So again, ask ask a loaded question. Um, I I can't cite any any life insurance adverts that I've seen that that are targeted to a younger a younger demographic. Um, and so your 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 position probably isn't that that unfounded i'm pretty sure um some of our listeners would challenge that and say oh no 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 i know someone who who has this or has that um yeah. but per- personally in terms of my awareness looking at it i haven't seen uh, any any adverts you know, specifically targeted against uh, a, a younger generation, or in fact, I should say that all of the ad- advertising that I've seen have been targeted at a particular <laughs> generation. Um, yeah. You know, or circumstance. So you have the, the the two that are covered there. So age and circumstance. So the older demographic, for sure, over the years, decades, have seen that. But families, those with families. Yeah. You know. It's always, you know, it's always those adverts are always very, you know, sentimental and 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 sort of nurturing in terms of their narration. You know, it's like talking about your loved ones and you know <laughs> these these hushed tones and and, and things of that nature. Um, what you also see is with the unfortunate, unfortunate rise and rise in terms of the prevalence of. Uh, cancer amongst the population yeah. uh, what you also see now is an increased number of uh, life insurance adverts you know tar- you know centered around <clears throat> excuse me centered around that particular illness and again it's still that it's still the same premises life insurance about protecting against the worst happening but a, a lot of it is focused or tar- targeted around that particular illness because, you know, as I said, it, it's the unfortunate sort of rise and rise of the prevalence of it that we're seeing um, in society. So that as a, that as a, that as a means to potentially target a younger demographic, I can see as a as a buy-in um because if it's a slightly older generation let's say of people actually getting cancer they are the families and the younger people 
yeah. related to those individuals who may have more of an awareness of, you know, or conscious thought around life insurance and, you know, think about the possibility, you know, about the hereditary nature of, of some cancers and things like that, you know, and, and maybe more inclined to think about life insurance at a, at a longer, younger stage as a consequence of their own personal experiences, you know. So life insurance is my uh, singular answer. Okay, great. Yeah, because, yeah, like, like I say, it's not, there's, it's not something I can say I've had conversation with lots of people about. Um, it, it, it is, and it's, not, it's, it's, it's one step away from sort of, you know, a, a morbid um, series of questions or conversations that you would have, isn't it? It is. I mean, the the next one would be sort of like, you know, sort of funeral plans and things of that nature. <laughs> that, you, that you see sort of twins. It's, it twins, is one twins, step away from that. Twins, twin together, you know, or, or, or will writing services, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a collection... You know, they're a collection of, of of services that naturally, organically operate in the same sort of sphere of one another. Um, yeah. And and that's just that's just a consequence of, of, of existence in life though, isn't it? Yeah, well this is it. I mean there is a taboo associated with talking about any of it related to death. Uh, and especially culturally in certain cultures it's, it's not something that um should really be even spoken about in certain cultures you know um and i'm aware of that um however maybe me being me um and me being me means being a risk aware person it's almost like there can be a mitigation for most things and it's only up to the individual to try and work out what mitigation they could put in for certain risk factors uh, that could crystallise mm. for anyone at any point and it's just trying to work out what mitigations you could put in for certain, uh, for certain things that may, could mm. have the chance of happening um, and I guess the, the reason why life insurance is one that I say one should always consider is in many ways, it's almost like hedging. And I know it sounds pretty crude to say it like that, but if you were going to do very well in life or if you were going to be comfortable or if you care about what life might be if the worst were to happen, if I said that, well, for less than the price of insuring your phone, uh, or for or or for a quarter of the amount you pay for your phone bill, you could potentially cover yourself and your loved ones um, quite comfortably. Um, people might have a different view, and I guess uh, it's a free plug for any insurance companies out there that might stumble across <laughs> across this podcast because it wouldn't take too much of comparing costs of X versus cost of life insurance to make the point to people that actually it could just be a sound investment if the worst were to, to actually happen. 
um, yeah. for for the people that uh, might be left behind. I mean, there's there's a natural inevitability inevitability to to the human existence, right? So <laughs> um, yes. So so it, it it depends how you actually feel about that. I mean, we have to you have to take into consideration, um, you know, as with with life insurance, it's it's you know built on your own personal circumstances uh, as well. So your your premium isn't equal across across all. Of so, course, you know people who are who are firefighters will have will have a slightly different risk level than someone working in an office. Um, yeah. So yeah. So. As I said, there's then an, an inevitability to life, and it and it does come down to the individual and how they actually feel about things, because yep. uh, a, a lot of people don't necessarily want to think about it because it it it, it you know it because it, it's sort of thinking about some finality in terms of their existence, but I think yeah your your position may change subject to your your family. Uh, situation in terms of you know who who you have around you um, that that would benefit or you not being around would be having detrimental impact on so I I think uh, you know the investment probably isn't as much as people might think it would be and the the same sort of slides across into um, you know private medical as as you sort of spoke about beforehand. But yeah, do you, just as a quick side note, do you remember what the last big insurance controversy was? Uh, well, payment protection insurance. Bingo, exactly that. So payment protection insurance. So not quite not quite life insurance but operates on the same premise so yeah it was it's a protection against the you know unfortunate circumstance that you uh lose your lose your source of income now it operates ever so slightly than life insurance which is quite very clear cut um in terms of when you actually uh you know claim against that 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 policy as opposed to the ppi which has you know varying had had sorry you can no longer uh, had varying degrees of time before you actually saw any benefit uh from that policy yeah but private private medical as we as we mentioned is is another area that i think probably after life insurance, people probably think about even less than than life insurance. Um, yeah. Again, the existence of the NHS. So, for the large majority of people, through their through their lives, um, you know, only singularly interact with the NHS. Um, yeah. For for their their care. Um, 
and that has been sufficient for many decades from the inception of the NHS. Um, but societally, we know that there's only going to be an increased and increased demand and pressure on the NHS um, to provide the level of care that people want, need, and expect um, from, from the organization. So over the past decade or decade or so, for me personally, I've, I've seen uh, a lot more people actually take up private medical for exactly those reasons, to try and yeah. expedite uh, treatments, which yeah. via the NHS um, would, would take uh, a considerable period of time to get to. Yeah, so that is the big sell, private medical insurance. That is the big sell. Um, and if one has the ability to get it, that is the big thing. Because if one were to get results from a, a test and they were to be negative or bad or poor, and you wanted more information or you wanted to be seen or you wanted to see a consultant and then you get a letter saying, oh, it's going to take you six, you know, next appointments in nine months time. Um, what are you going to do? You know, and certainly if you have dependents or family members of a certain age, um, it's something that may come to your mind if you know you're you're just thinking about you know if this were to happen if this were to happen what could you do how could you speed things up and that has been for me anyway uh the big sell with private medicals just that god forbid if the worst were to happen or if something very serious were to happen you're not going to have to wait months and months and months and i'm not trying to suggest that the nhs universally is poor and or slow however it can be a lottery depending on who you are where you live and what the thing is um, and i think private medical insurance just helps to narrow that down greatly if the worst were to, to happen um, and i've used if a lot and that's because everything we're talking about is risks and i think the, the theme of today's episode has pretty much been about risk in one way or another, whether it's the risk versus reward of of making gains on an investment or risks associated with taking life insurance and medical insurance. And you know, risk is a big part of everyday life. And it's just another consideration point when we talk about private medical insurance. Um, and again, it's a, like, like, like you say, the NHS is sufficient for a lot of people throughout their whole lives without them necessarily need to have any additional medical cover. And and you are right to say that. And to be honest, I've not claimed on my private medical insurance and I, and I hope I don't ever have to. And I still go to the NHS for GP appointments and, 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 and stuff like that as and when I need those. Uh, it's only, again, 
pardon the pun, an insurance policy, uh, just in case I need something a bit more and a bit quite, uh, a bit faster for myself and anyone in my family, if, if, if that were to ever be needed. Yeah, it is. It is exactly that, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a just in case policy. Yeah. Um, why? Because you never know. And, <laughs> and that's what insurance companies sort of re- rely on. I mean, that's, that's on a, that's on a individual person person level but we have to consider insurance exists you know in in the corporate world as as well to to safeguard against certain things um well as you say that i heard a rumor i need to validate this is correct that wimbledon made money this year considering that wimbledon didn't take place uh the reason why they made money allegedly is that they they've been paying, I think two million pounds per year for what has been referenced as a pandemic insurance. Mm-hmm. So they've been paying two million pounds a year for the last, I think, twenty odd years. Against, uh, against insuring against a, a cancellation due to like a pandemic or or similar. And they got paid, I think it was something ridiculous, like I can't remember, about 100 million or something like that, which has been paid off. So I need to validate if that is actually true, but I, I saw it in a few publications. So, and, and, they, and they've, so they've kind of actually ironically made a profit this year from the policy, considering that they didn't have to host a game. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it it was about um it was about one hundred and fourteen or one hundred and fifteen billion uh, that that they they got in from from their payout, um which again comes back to your short, medium, and long term investment, um so it, it's it you know effectively is was an investment for them, um and it's actually worked out in their favor. I think the great yeah. thing about this particular insurance payout is that it wasn't predicated on a, a significant loss of life or anything of, of that nature, in, you know, as a consequence of the event or something happening specifically at the event. Yeah. Um, as such for them to, to get that payout, but they, they've definitely lucked out in, in that instance. But going back to your level of, your, your original question about insurance, I know I gave my singular answer about, about life insurance, um, but home insurance is quite a significant thing um, that a lot of people, I think, tend to have, particularly, you know, the, the homeowning home population sort of tend to have um, yeah. as, as well, which, you know, safeguards you against all manner of things. Um, including various environmental disasters and so forth, but you know, in, insurance companies are, are, are clever at the same time. So whilst whilst you know you're able to get insurance for certain things um, with an increased prevalence of any type of claim, there's usually a, a tightening of the, yeah. <laughs> the of the exclusion. Yes. Uh, you know, clause list um, that will no longer be able to be claimed against because it's a known risk 
uh, yeah. against against that that company, um, and it's and it's a it's, it's sort of like a game to play. So it's not like a given just by default that oh you have a you have a policy you know a home insurance policy and this happens that you'll get a payout. I think the objective of the insurance companies isn't to actually pay out money. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know that they 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 legitimately provide you a level of 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 cover and will pay out against that policy but you know as i said they are the they are the the loopholes and they are the hoops you have to jump through in order to be able to make successful claims so people who live in um the areas over the past decade in in britain that have ex- experienced extreme flooding for example um their people with home insurance in those instances were able to claim against that home insurance and all of those companies took a substantial hit um at, at that time um following that not only did your home insurance premium go up the the next year there was also some additions to the exclusion yeah. <laughs> list about what what's actually covered. So, you know, so insurance is that just in case type policy that you that you invest in, um, but it's often a game of cat and mouse sometimes to actually get the cheese. Pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's the insurance then. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there any other type of insurance? No, I think we've spoken about all, all, all the main ones that I think we need to talk on. And the last one will be probably quite quick to talk about. Um, we've spoken about investments, which some people may consider as risky places to put your money in terms of the stock market and financial markets. Uh, we've spoken about property, which is probably seen as less riskier universally than investing in the stock market and now we are about to talk about individual savings accounts also known as ISAs. Um, the only ISA I personally have right now is a stocks and shares ISA um, other than that and the tax benefits associated with that I don't have any other ISAs and growing up interestingly enough I never really had or made use of an ISA although obviously I had standard savings accounts which are which I which I use um I think ISAs ISAs have been uh an, an interesting uh service uh, uh, available to people over I think the past couple of decades really um, so they they've created an opportunity for you to sort of enjoy some tax-free benefits against you know some of your some of your own capital so you know you can pay pay in up to a, a finite amount um, each year and, and get that that you know, tax, tax-free windfall at the end of the financial year. Again, over the over time, the the thresholds have increased uh, 
no, quite significantly about how much you can put in against uh, in, into the into the ISA, um, which has been great. Again, a lot of people took advantage of those opportunities. Interest rates, however, has had <laughs> a more than significant effect on the viability of an ISA as a yeah. as a placeholder for people looking to earn some income from effectively uh, zero zero effort, as it were. Yeah. So. I think currently interest rates against most ISAs are, you know, less than, less than, definitely less than a percent. Um, yes. And probably a percentage point of, of a percent, percent yeah. of a percent. So 0.1% or 0.2% or some, some, some nominal value like that, which effectively amounts to, nothing subject to how much you have in that ISA. I mean yeah. so as a as a as a as an opportunity and a and a tool outside of a stocks and shares type ISA, then I think a lot of people are seeking alternative <clears throat> investment opportunities uh, with with their money. So I'm on the Santander website. Other banks are available. Um, they've got their ISAs. Their two-year fixed-rate ISA is 0.35%. As much as that? Goodness me. Goodness me. I mean... The only ISA... I think I, if I exclude the stock shares, I say the only one I've ever set up is one for my daughter. Um, and when that was set up, that looked highly attractive because um, they were offering 3%, which on paper doesn't sound like a lot, but 3% compounded over 10, 15, 18 years is a lot of money irrespective of what you put in to it, considering that you're taking no risk with that money, yeah. it, it, it made sense. But as interest rates have fallen to oblivion, the benefit, or shall I say the opportunity of cost of locking up that money, especially for junior ISAs where the money cannot be touched until child is 18, it's almost like, mm, nah, it's just not, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people that swear by ISIS and um, I don't have anything against it per se. Um, but it's almost like, I'm just looking at it now, just like, what's the point? What's and the, I think I think I think a lot of people are actually looking at it at it that way. Um, so, in in terms of a, an investment, what you'd get back. So, if you if you look at twenty thousand, if you took twenty thousand pounds 
into an ISA at 0.35%, did you say, was, was yeah. the cent in there rate? Uh, yeah. that, that, that only equates to about uh, £70 pounds, um, against a £20,000 you know, 20, uh, in, in the ISA. So a lot of people, and then a lot of, a lot of people, this is where I think a lot, a lot of people look towards either, you know, short, short day trading and, and so forth as a, as an opportunity to do better than an ISA for, for instance. So if you're, even if you're, if your objective is, let's say half a percent per day, you know, if you're, mm. if you're, if you're day trading against, against 20,000 pounds, let's say, let's use the same amount, um, yeah. your, your return on investment, you know, the potential reward is significantly higher than having that money sort of set in an ISA. So, well, yeah, if you're comparing point so 0.5% a day against 0.35% a year yeah it's no competition i mean i, I put out i put out 0.5% just as a just as a, yeah, an example yeah, i mean and, and ambitiously from from a from a from a trading point of view i think if you sort of levied uh, like 1 1% a day against a reasonable uh, amount of capital uh, invested then that you, I would say you were doing relatively well. relatively well, right? Yeah. So I so I picked half percent just to sort of you know bring some reality into the situation. Um, but I think even if you consider even if you consider that that's a daily percentage, even if you had the same zero point three, you know three five percent applied daily, I mean. Let's say you were only success. You only successfully traded, you know, ten out of twenty days in a month. You're still going to have bested the ISA position quite quite significantly. So I think it's simple math like that that makes makes sort of day trading or short trading attractive as an opportunity. Yeah. No, no, no I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, I says yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I guess you just got to pick up a paper. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There, I think the employment rate, or should I say, the unemployment rate, is probably twenty percent if you included furlough people at this point. Um, house prices are falling. Um. Interest rates are falling. Um, they want you to spend money, but people are too scared to spend money because you can't go anywhere, and people are not sure if they're going to have jobs. And then you want to put money that you're not spending into a savings account, but you're completely turned off by it because the interest rates are so low. Then the government are probably flirting with the idea of negative interest rates, which is a concept that will baffle many people, which I think would 
create the opposite effect. Instead of negative interest rates coercing people to spending money, I think it would make people put more in, even though even if they had to pay for their bank accounts. Um, yeah, it's just it's just not really great at the moment. And like you say, I mean, I'll be honest with you and say that I, I'm I'm looking for opportunities where one could make money that's not reliant on 0.35 per year interest rate. I'm, I'm not going to hide away from that. Um, mainly because right now, I mean, even, even having lots of money in some of the more stable investment classes at the moment, to me, aren't looking so stable only because it's all predicated on a correctly functioning economy. Of course. And I had concerns that this economy is far away from functioning correctly. And I actually think it was broken before the pandemic. It was just not being highlighted because of that item that begins with a B and ends in a T, you know, overshadowing every thing that was wrong with this country for about four years. What what has breakfast got to do with this? Yeah, exactly. And at the end of that four-year breakfast breakfast period, we've had, uh, unfortunately, a a global pandemic, which happens once every hundred years. So, yeah, overall a little bit pessimistic, but hey, we're going to have an upbeat episode next time, which is going to be more about the positives of lots of different things rather than the negatives of the negatives. But I hope that this episode has given people a wider view of the financial opportunities and the financial products that they can investigate for themselves. So I'm hoping that at least if anything else has come out of, of nothing else has come out of this um, some awareness on the different things financially you can do uh, uh, to help yourself and help your family yeah I would, I would, I would, I would say that that's a, that's a reasonable position statement uh, about this particular episode I think we've explored a lot of uh, worthwhile avenues that, are, that I'm pretty sure a lot of people have already been thinking about um, and will hopefully explore a bit more depth uh, now as well I think you know anything that lets that makes people think about their personal circumstances and understand and, and, and work out for themselves if they feel that they're doing the best they can or if there's anything else they can do to improve their situation or circumstances or yep. help safeguard against some unknown uh, quantities so particularly around insurance uh, as we said great i think so i think so Stephen. it's been another one it's been a, it's been a special one so thank you very much sir pleasure as ever as always and look forward to the next one